We're starting a series in the book of Haggai. My practice has been uh, do a book of the Minor Prophets on Wednesday night and then take a break and do a doctrinal series. We finished the Lord's Supper about four weeks, I think, on the Lord's Supper last week. So we'll start this short book this week, two chapters. Which we'll be turning to various scriptures throughout the uh, message tonight as we lay the foundation for this great book. I, I don't know how much time I've spent in Haggai over the years, but I spent a lot this last week reading and rereading both chapters. It's a really amazing book to read. And uh, it's very closely related to Zechariah, so my son will love it because it says the name Zerubbabel a lot. And he's, he really likes that name, so he'll get to hear that a little bit. I don't know how you pronounce the name properly. Like Habakkuk, he's got a name that's in dispute. Some people say Haggai, some say Haggai. If you don't mind, I'll say Haggai. That's how I grew up saying it. His book is small, only two chapters, which I believe makes him the second shortest prophet after Obadiah, who only wrote one chapter. Haggai's name means festal or festive. It's a very interesting thing. It, could mean he was born during a festival or a feast day of some kind. Uh, it's very closely related to the Roman name Festus. You might remember that from the book of Acts. In similar fashion to other prophets, Haggai rebukes the sins of the people of Israel. What sets him apart from most other prophets is that they actually listen to him. It's a very rare thing you find with the people of Israel. And he promises great glory to come. Let's start in Ezra chapter 5. That's where he's first mentioned in the Bible. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. He gets a brief mention there. He is a post-exile prophet like Zechariah. And so um, Nehemiah and, and Ezra both deal with the return of the captives to rebuild the temple and the city. So it's not hard to believe he was mentioned there. So we'll just read. Uh, it just mentions him briefly. We're not going to stay here very long. Ezra 5.1, then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, or Iddo prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, that's Joshua, the son of Josedek, and began to build the house of God which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. Uh, I'm trying not to jump ahead to next week. Anyway, I'm just going to stop there because I'm going to jump in. I'm really excited about next week's message, and so I'm going I'm I'm to try to refrain that a little bit tonight. The author of the book is Haggai. Like Zechariah, he is a post-exilic prophet, and his entire recorded ministry lasted only a few weeks in the year 520 B.C. The exiles had returned to Jerusalem under the decree of Cyrus in 539 B.C., they built the altar and the foundations of the temple, but then they forgot about it, and they left it in ruins, and they began to build their own houses and cultivate their own lands. It's now about 19 years after the return to the land to build the temple, and it still lies in ruins. The book is made up of four prophetic oracles and narrative responses. Oracle 1 is found in Haggai 1, 1 through 11. That's a rebuke for neglecting the temple while tending to their own homes. Doesn't that sound like us today? Right? What, what, I think it was in, uh, maybe, I don't want to misquote, I think it was in Song of Solomon. I've kept the vineyard, but my own vineyard have I not kept. They were the opposite. They kept their own vineyards, they didn't care for the Lord's vineyard. 
Can you imagine the people of God? You just got back from exile for your disobedience. And for 19 years, you left the house of the Lord in ruins. You haven't sacrificed. You haven't kept the feasts or the festivals. You are, once again, disobedient to the law of God. I was studying this. I was thinking about this the other day. And I thought, boy, they're fools. But then I thought, how many times do I neglect the things of the Lord for my own things? So it's hard to puff out our chest at the Israelites and say, well, if I had been there, you know what I would have done? I would have left the temple in ruin for 19 years and built my own house. That's how sinful I am. How often do we put our own priorities ahead of the Lord, ahead of the Lord's ministry? That's what the prophet's going to address in this book. He said, you laid the foundations, and then you left it in ruins. They needed to build the house of the Lord. That first oracle is followed by a narrative response of the people, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. We're not going to read that right now. It's kind of give you an overview of the book tonight. Oracle 2 is a response to older Israelites who recall how glorious Solomon's temple had been. That's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. They remembered the glory of the old temple. Shame on them for leaving the house of God in ruins. It's the older people who are supposed to teach the younger people. Those who saw the glory of the first house of God, those who saw the destruction of the temple, those who, who went away captive into exile should have been the ones to first teach the young Israelites, serve the Lord, follow the law, be obedient, keep the covenant. They weren't doing that. They weren't doing that. There was a failure. Listen, the older are to teach the younger. You've been saved for a long time. It's your responsibility to teach those who have not been saved for a long time to be an example, to show them how to serve the Lord. It's our responsibility to show our kids how to serve the Lord. Part of the problem with Israel, I think, over time, is you'd see the command to, you know, God would give some great victory, and then the command would come to teach the children, set up an altar, you know, when they ask you what do these stones mean, tell them. And then a generation passes away, and they forget the Lord their God. You know why? They didn't teach the next generation. I didn't teach them. We have that today. We have a dearth of teaching of the Word of God. Jason and I were out yesterday together, and we were talking about the black Hebrew Israelites. I was, I was thinking when I got home last night about, about that conversation. Why are so many of them being drawn into that? And the answer is, they grew up with a religious undertone in church with grandma and mom, but were never taught the Word of God. And they're craving some kind of religious answer. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, you're actually a special Jew. And it appeals to them. You, 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 do you know why they're doing that? Because they're not being taught the word of God. Now let's turn to the white people. Why are they deconstructing from their faith? Because they're not being taught the word of God. It's not being passed on by the parents. I watch video after, it's become a hobby of mine. I think I watch 10 videos a week on deconstructing your faith. And they all have the same story. They love their sin. But when they get to verses in the Bible that I struggled with this verse, this verse is what crumbled my faith. And I hear, I'm like, that's not in context. That's not what the Bible's saying. But they've never truly been taught what the Bible says. 
They go to a church maybe once a week and the pastor gives a, a sermon where the verse is never put in context and he, he pulls it out and makes a point with it and they never hear the gospel. That's why they're leaving. People say, why are young people leaving the church? Because we're not teaching them the word of God. They're not getting saved. They're growing up believing they're saved because they're in church. And they went forward and signed a card at teen camp. But that's not salvation. They have to know the word of God. We're failing to teach them. Why is American evangelicalism the way it is today? Because those of the last generation didn't pass it down to their kids. Where did it all fall apart? I'll tell you where it all fell apart. Are you ready for this? I'm going on a tangent again. It's not even in my notes. I've lost track of my sermon. Because we outsourced the teaching to youth groups and youth pastors who played games and filled them with sugar and marshmallows and never taught them the word of God. We gave them to Sunday school teachers. It's not my job. That's the teacher's job to teach them the Bible. And they go home, they hear very little scripture. I know people today. I know them. I could say their name and I could offend them on live stream if they were watching. That they're in their home, the Bible's never talked about until it's grab your Bible, let's go to church, get your shoes on. They never talk about the things of God. That's, a, that's for church. What is that old uh, Robin Hood cartoon with the bears and all that? And Friar Tuck's saying something, and the sheriff says, Save your sermon, it ain't Sunday, preacher. That's how we treat the gospel today. It's for there, it's for, it's for them to teach. No, it's for all of us to pass down to the next generation. And we're not doing that. And then we look around and say, why is the church the way that it is? Same way that reason the temple was still in ruins 19 years later. We've gone about building our 401ks, our careers, our, our getting college degrees under our belt. We've gone building our own empires and we've not passed on the word of God. Nothing has changed from the days of Haggai. Nothing. Except there's a few prophets in the Bible who are willing to stand up and say, what are you doing? Leaving the house of God in ruins while you build your own houses. You realize that American Christians, I read this statistic, put 75% more of their money into pet food than into worldwide missions. Why is the church the way it is? 80% of teens who left the faith in adulthood said the Bible was rarely or never talked about at home. And that's why, because mom and dad are too busy, because we're all living separate lives. Kids are busy, parents are busy. I heard somebody say one time, oh, our kids, are so, they need a vacation. Kids don't need vacation. They don't do anything. But you know what they do? They're running from this sport to this sport over here, over here, and dance class over here, and dad's working late hours to, to get that nice vacation, and, and mom's working full time. And we're building our own land, our own houses. The house of God is in ruins. This is not a pitch for money. This is a pitch for our lives. We should be pouring our lives into the service of Christ, not into our own hobbies or our own desires, or our own wants. You know what God wants? The evangelization of the world. That's what he wants. 
What are we doing for that? Do we even evangelize locally? If you're not going to tell your neighbor, you're not going to tell the guy in communist China. We're building our own empires. Churches. It's not a money problem. Big churches pour thousands of dollars into their buildings, into their pyrotechnics on Sunday to have a great service while people are dying who have never heard the name of Christ. Listen, the temple of God is in ruins in America today. We're building our own lives. Nothing has changed. We, I mean, I'm putting that pressure on you. You may be pouring your life into Christ. Wonderful. But collectively, as a society, as Christians, we have left the temple in shambles to build our own empires. And Paul, we're going through Philippians on Sunday morning. For me to live is Christ. We went over what that meant. It wasn't just like, well, if I live and don't die in this prison, then I'll serve Christ. And they know for me to live is literally like my whole life is Christ. You say, well, pastor, I have to make a living. So did Paul. He, he was a tent maker. He didn't get, he got sometimes supported by churches, but very rarely. He worked his way through the Roman Empire. What I'm saying is, Paul said that for me to live is just Christ. It's just another day of bearing fruit, sharing the gospel. Suffering for Christ, getting to know him, and then to die is gain. And we, we love that. We love that part. Oh, to die is gain. To die is gain. Yes, and to live should be Christ. It should be pouring on, not just, oh, i got to make time to read my Bible. No, you don't have to make time. to read your, your life should be Christ. You should be saying, I have to find time to eat breakfast. I'm just so busy praying so long and reading my Bible, hearing from God. church should be why we miss everything else. We shouldn't miss everything else for, go to everything else and miss church. There's legitimate reasons to miss church. I understand that. But if you're sitting home watching 20-something, that's not a legitimate reason. We should want to be in church. You realize they worship daily in the early church. I was reading George Mueller. I don't know. I I I don't know how they did church back then. That's just the 1800s. I don't know what they did, but he's like, Preach at the chapel on Tuesday afternoon. Went back for prayer meeting Tuesday night. Preach Wednesday night. Preach Thursday morning. Had a prayer meeting Thursday afternoon. Preach Thursday night. I'm like, where is he preaching at? Thursday night, Thursday morning, Tuesday. Apparently they met for church a lot. We barely crawl in Sundays or Wednesdays. What I'm saying is we've got to stop treating church like a club or the ministry like a hobby. Ministry should be our lives. Our work should be our hobby. I don't remember who the missionary. I don't want to misquote it. it Maybe Adam Judson or I don't know one one missionary guy back in the old days. I think 1700s, 1800s was traveling. I, I, I'm going to get this. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this. I admit it. But somebody asked him. He says, "You know, what do you do for a living? Or what do you do for work?" He says, "Well, my work is preaching the gospel." He goes, "I mend shoes to pay my way." That should be our life. Well, my life is the gospel. I just, I just work here to pay my bills. I was reading this this week over and over. I became so convicted. First, I became angry. They just left the temple in ruins for 19 years. And then God was like, are you any better than them? I'm like, oh, do I 
spiritually leave the temple in ruins to pursue my own interests. Too often in my life that's been the case. In the American church, for sure, we've not tended to God's work like we ought to tend. We ought to be hearing from God daily. We ought to be drawn into greater fellowship with him, conformed to the image of Christ. We ought to be weeping over the lost. Taking Art's mom's profession of faith at face value, God just saved somebody we've been praying for. Will that make you pray for somebody harder tonight, tomorrow? God saves people. God saves people. Kim, keep witnessing, because God saves people. People who are near death, people who should have died, can get saved. 105-year-old, you realize he's dying, right? His grandson said he's slipping. He, some days he doesn't know who he is or where he is. I mean, he got saved just in time. Because God does that. But we're unimpressed. We're unimpressed. That's not enough for us to just pour our lives into God's work. Church, we need to build the temple of God. The foundation's not enough. This temple that, that we're going to talk about in this book, Haggai, he, when he talks about the temple, he's not just talking about the physical temple. He's looking ahead to the temple of Jesus Christ, the great and glorious final temple. Christ is the temple of God today, and we are to invite men to come in and worship him. We have a very short time in this world. We're wasting it watching television, hitting golf balls, and going fishing. When there are people perishing and God is still saving sinners. I was so convicted this week over this book. Why are we putting so much into our own interests when the interests of God lay waste? Shame on me. Shame on us. Where was I at in my notes? I don't know. I did Oracle 2. No. Yes. Oracle 3. That's chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. The prophet answers questions about laws that govern ritual defilement. Oracle 4. A promise to Zerubbabel that he is the, va or he is the vassal governor under the Persian Empire. Remember, when Israel went into captivity, they were never again to have a king until Jesus came. They lost their monarchy. They were under the control of Medo-Persia, Babylon, Rome, Greece, but they did not have their own rulership anymore. Zerubbabel was a, a governor from the Persian Empire over the Jewish people. He was a grandson of King Jehoiakim. Jehoiachin, however you say that. You can contrast what's said about the two of them. This will become very important later on, so remember this and hang on. Kind of tuck it away to the end of the message, okay? But turn to Deuteronomy or Jeremiah 22:24. When you compare the king and Jeremiah, I'm sorry, um, Haggai. Jeremiah 
Now, this king, of course, we know him by another name, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, same person. He was cursed. We talked about this at Christmas time, didn't we? His curse is what made the birth of Christ so important, being virgin born. But let's come back to that. Verse 24, as I live, say the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee hence. If you were my signet ring, I would throw you away. Now, turn to Haggai 2.23. Contrast that with Zerubbabel, his grandson, by the way. The grandson of that man. Haggai 2, verse 23. In that day, say the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. What we're going to see in Zerubbabel, pictured in him, is the beginning of the reversal of the curse on Jeconiah. He said, that worthless, I'm going to throw him away. But God doesn't cast off forever, does he? He doesn't. And he's going to heal and he's going to restore through Zerubbabel. Haggai uses easy-to-understand literary devices in his book. This will help us understand the book if we take note of these things. He uses rhetorical questions. I hate these growing up, rhetorical questions. I mean, I try to get help in school. Teacher, look at my work. Does that look right to you? It did. Not now. I hate the rhetorical You know it doesn't, obviously, because you're asking that question. I used to hate that. I probably do that now to my kids. Does that look right? Is that how you're supposed to write that? They did that earlier. We're doing homework. Should that be a capital P or a small p? I know the answer. Look at Haggai 1.4. Haggai 1.4. Rhetorical questions. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? There's a lot of sarcasm there, by the way. <laughs> you guys comfortable? Is this what you should be doing right now? God brought you out of bondage? Comfortable in your home? Should you be sitting in your homes comfortable right now? How about Haggai 2.3? Who's left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? God knows who's there. He's not looking for a head count. He wants them to ask the question, did I see? Oh, I saw that. That's me. Rhetorical questions. A second literary device he uses is repetition. Haggai 1.5. Now therefore, thus say the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai 1.7. Thus say the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Say, why does God repeat himself so much? Because we don't listen. We don't listen. Been preaching through Proverbs, and you repeat a lot in Proverbs. And someone goes, Pastor, why is there so much repetition? I said, Did you obey it the first time you heard it? <laughs> Probably not. I didn't either. He has to repeat because we are stubborn, hard headed, hard hearted people. A third literary device is parallelism. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Look at Haggai 1 6. You have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. He says, you sow much, you harvest little. He's doing parallelism there. 
A fourth device is his use of illusions. The verse we just read, Haggai 1.6, let's read that again. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. Let me just stop there. That's, that preaches right there, doesn't it? We're busy working so hard for money that just goes away. Make sure you're serving the Lord. Pay your bills. Pay your way through life. But life isn't work. People whose life is around their work or their possessions, they're just putting it all into a bag with holes in it. Because you know what? At the end of the day, you don't keep any of it. It goes to the government or it goes to groceries or the, the car breaks down. The thief breaks in and steals it. I remember standing one time with my wife years ago. It, it really never hit me. So that moment, believe it or not, we're in Beverly Hills, and we're standing outside the home of Jack Benny, one of my favorite comedians, and was looking at his house, and a window was open, so I could kind of, a light was on, I could see inside. Cars in the driveway, and for some reason, God just does things at weird times, and he ministered to me in that moment. He worked so hard. His daughter in her biography of her dad said his God was comedy. That was his religion. But you know what? There's a different car in the driveway now. That's somebody else's kitchen I'm looking into. Somebody else's living room, their front door. Oh, somebody just turned on the light upstairs. That's their bedroom now. It's not his anymore. Gave his whole life to a God that he no longer holds on to. As he's probably in hell. So much of the world is putting their lives into that which they will never keep for eternity. Even Christians pouring ourselves into things that don't matter. I love sports. I love football, basketball, baseball. That's the only sports there is. Everything else is just make-believe. I mean, people put so much into, so much money and time into that hobby. Christians, too. Famously, I've mentioned before, when you preach at the Super Bowl and the Patriots used to be there, they gather around us, hold up signs saying, we have a God, his name is Tom Brady. It was a very common sign to see. I was talking to a man one time, and Broncos were in the Super Bowl. It was in... It was in uh, he was in New York. And uh, Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning. Because I worship Peyton Manning. I was witnessing to him. And I said, well, well, it's funny. When I was your age, it was John Elway. John Elway. John Elway. He was the quarterback for the Broncos. He goes, oh, he doesn't matter anymore. I said, and one day Peyton Manning is not going to matter anymore. Then what do you have? You worship something that's not going to matter anymore. 10 years, 12 years, he's done. But we Christians are the same way. We pour ourselves in. You realize if you die tonight in bed, go home, go to sleep, die in your sleep, your work will be sad for a day, but they'll replace you. I don't mean to sound crass here or obnoxious, but your spouse may marry somebody else. It happens. 
your home, if you're living by yourself, will be occupied by, they'll find a new renter or they'll sell it. Your car will go to somebody else or be demolished. Everything we're pouring our lives into, all those things will easily replace us if we die tonight. The only thing eternal, church, is Christ and his ministry. That's it. What we do in service to Christ, we take with us. And we have forever. No one can take our reward from us. Christ said, behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. If it's with him, it's safe. Everything we give to Christ, we still have in eternity. I don't just mean money. I mean time. I mean our heart, our affection, our interest, our desires. Do you desire Christ? If you desire Christ, you won't have, tri- you won't, you won't have trouble finding time to read the Bible. You won't struggle to have time to pray. You'll struggle to stop your praying so you can go do other things. Do we truly desire Christ, church? Or are we just putting everything we have in our lives into a bag with holes in it? What a waste. What a waste. Can you imagine? What a waste. Let me go on. Sorry. Illusions. Let me read that verse one more time. I got carried away. Verse Haggai 1 6. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages, are put into a bag with holes. This is an allusion to Deuteronomy 28 38. Go ahead and turn there. Deuteronomy 28 38. Deuteronomy 28, 38. The Bible says, Thou shalt carry much seed out in the field, and shalt gather but little in, for the locusts shall consume it. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but shalt neither drink of the wine, neither gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. Thou shalt have olive trees throughout all thy coast, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with the oil, for thine olive shall cast his fruit. In other words, they'll have, but they'll lose. I heard a sermon one time. It wasn't an especially good sermon, but it had a good point. The title of the sermon was, They Got What They Wanted, But They Lost What They Had. What a great sermon. Adam and Eve, boy, they wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. They got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. David wanted Bathsheba. He got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. The respect of his children and of the people, and of God. Demas loved the present world. He got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You put your life into this world, Christian. You sow your life for money, for fame, for comfort, for homes, for cars, you may get what you want, but you'll lose what you have. You'll lose the reward of Christ. You'll demonstrate you're not saved. You'll lose eternity to Christ. A lot of people today are walking away from the faith because it's the thing to do. Get you a lot of clicks on YouTube. They get what they want, but they lose what they had. 
be careful. Be careful about pouring your life into something that one day you say, it all went through my fingers. You ever try to hold sand? Remember the beach, my kids try to hold sand and carry a handful of sand over. You know what happens? As they walk towards us, it's just leaking out the bottom of their hands. They can't do it. Just by the time they get there, it's all gone. That's what this world is. We're trying to grab cupful, handfuls of this world. And it, just, it just slips through our fingers. And we never get the fulfillment we think we're going to get. Christ isn't like carrying sand in your hand. He's like carrying sand in a bucket. And you fill it up and you have it. This world deceives us, church. It deceives us. Another good example is verse 22 in Deuteronomy there. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption, with a fever, with an inflammation, with an extreme burning, with a sword, with blasting, with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Compare that with Haggai 2.17. Turn there. These are allusions he's giving. Haggai 2.17, I smote you with blasting, with mildew, with hail, and the labors of your hands, yet you turn not to me, saith the Lord. When Haggai says these things, they're going to think about the Deuteronomy passage. They're going to know that's in the law of God. An important theme of the book is the centrality of worship. In chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, which is the third oracle, we see that a holy thing is contaminated by touching an unclean thing. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Haggai 2.11 Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt, skirt do touch bread or pottage, or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. And then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. The foundation of the temple had been laid, but nothing else. The word of the prophet is that the temple lying in ruins contaminated all of life. As they touched the ground the temple was sitting on, it contaminated their... Our whole lives should be worship, church. If our worship is ruined, all of life is ruined. You understand that? If you're not worshiping Christ at your work, it contaminates everything. If you're not worshiping Christ in the word and in prayer daily, it, it, it contaminates everything. You ever miss church for a while? I don't mean because you had to, I mean because you, you wanted to. Weren't you miserable? I was. It contaminates everything. If I'm not working or worshiping and serving God as I ought to. Everything we do is worship. Amy's going to have a baby. That's worship. That's what she's designed to do. Changing diapers is worship. Feeding the baby is worship. Doing the laundry is worship. Going to work is worship. Serving your employer faithfully is worship. Loving your wife is worship. Loving your husband is worship. Loving your, playing with your kids in the park is worship. You understand that? Worship isn't just here. Everything we do should be an act of worship to God. Washing the dishes at home can be offered back to God as a service to him. When we're not doing that, it contaminates everything in our lives. Solomon built the first temple. This temple was destroyed through disobedience, and Israel was taken into exile. 
When they came back 70 years later, the temple was built again. We know this as Second Temple Judaism. Herod updated the temple. Work started on this project in 19 BC. 10,000 skilled laborers were brought in to work on it. 1,000 Levites were trained as builders so the work could go on without the sacrifices having to stop. When Jesus came to the temple, it had been under construction for 46 years. The work was finally completed in 63 AD, seven short years before it was again destroyed. When Jesus came to the temple, he cleansed it, pronounced final judgment on it, and identified himself as the true and eternal temple. This is how the author of Hebrews describes it. He quotes the second chapter of Haggai. Turn there. We read this, I think it was last week. Turn to Hebrews 12. I want to read it again because he quotes from Haggai. So I think it's important for us to understand the quote again. Hebrews 12, 22. The Bible says, But ye are come into Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he had promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things which are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear." Turn back to Haggai 2, verse 6, where this quote originates from. Haggai 2, verse 6. As you study your Bible, you'll be amazed at how much in the New Testament is actually a quotation of the Old Testament. You know why? Because the Old Testament is just a picture, a type, a shadow of the substance of the New Testament. Isn't that wonderful? I love that truth of the Bible. Haggai 2, 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while... And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations. And the desire of nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. We're being given an ultimate and a final kingdom, one that cannot be shaken. How is it that our kingdom cannot be shaken? Because the foundation of the, of the new temple is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. It's built upon him. He's unshakable. Foreshadowings in the book of Haggai. The promise is, uh, of Haggai is not a brick and mortar temple. He's looking beyond that. Remember, the temple they finally build is destroyed only seven years after its completion. Jesus walks in that temple, and well, they're all impressed by it. <laughs> Look at these great buildings, Jesus. He says, There's not going to be one stone left upon another, it's not going to be thrown down. You destroy this temple, I'll build it in three days. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Look at a couple of verses before we close on the promise of the eternal temple of God. Ephesians 2, 19. 
Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth under an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. First Corinthians six nineteen, turn there. First Corinthians six nineteen. Paul says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. By the way, what a, what a horrible thing to sin in the temple in Jerusalem, wasn't it? I mean, to sin, right? But sinning in the temple. That's why Jesus drove the money changers out. They were sinning in the temple. Isn't it amazing, like, we're superstitious today, we wouldn't do that at church. Ooh, not there, it's a holy place. You understand, this place is not any more holy than the supermarket. God dwells everywhere. This building, this property is not holy. We are holy. If you're worried about sinning at the church, anytime we sin, we're sinning in the temple of God. We're sinning where God dwells within us. That should move us. That should terrify us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, let's turn there. We are the temple of God through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, though the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. One more, 1 Peter 2, verse 4. 1 Peter 2, 4. It's one of my favorite ones about the eternal temple. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Peter says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones, that's living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And to you therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. We are living stones built upon him, built to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. We are houses of worship. Worship should affect our whole life, church. The prophet is pointing to the eternal temple of Christ's body where he will dwell with his people for eternity. Turn again, Revelation 21. I wasn't going to have you do it, but I think I will. Such a glorious passage. Revelation 21.3. I love this verse. Revelation 21.3. The Bible says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. In verse 22, I saw no temple. It's in the, the New Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. An eternal temple, church, that will never be destroyed, never be touched, never, never touch sin. Christ is the eternal temple. He dwells with us through the Spirit. 
We saw that in John 14 during the study on the Lord's Supper. Go back to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai 2.21. We're almost done, I promise. 2.21. The Bible says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. The vision here is not for a restoration of the earthly Jerusalem, but the coming in of the heavenly Jerusalem. The second foreshadow is of the coming Messiah. Look at verse 23. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, I, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. This is interesting. Zerubbabel was a descendant of Jeconiah, grandson actually. I reminded you earlier about the curse, Jeremiah 22, 24, the curse on Jeconiah. Keep that image of the signet ring in your mind. He said, I would cast him off. If Jeconiah was a ring, I'd just throw him away. But he tells his grandson, you know what? You're a signet ring on my hand. I'm going to use you. You're my chosen vessel. We've talked before about this curse and its effect on Jesus having the sole right to sit on the throne of David. There was actually a curse in the line of David. So Jesus, being virgin born, is uniquely qualified to sit on the throne. Look at verse 23 again. In that day, say the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, say, Lord, I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. His grandfather was a signet ring that God wanted to cast off. Zerubbabel is a signet ring that he wants to put on. The language of the use of the term in that day, it's a messianic phrase. He's looking beyond Zerubbabel's day. He's looking beyond the, the earthly temple they were rebuilding. Zerubbabel is a type and a picture of the coming Messiah. Just as Zerubbabel would build the temple in Jerusalem, so the coming servant, the true signet ring, would be the cornerstone of the eternal temple of God. The curse on Jeconiah was turned back at the virgin birth of Christ, and that began with Zerubbabel. As we get into the book, we'll see that this book is looking forward to the eternal kingdom of God and a temple that can never be destroyed and is not built by human hands. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, all curses are turned back. You understand that? The curse of Adam is turned back in Christ. The curse of Jeconiah is turned back in Christ. Everything is turned back in Christ because Christ is making all things new. He is the yes and the amen to all of the promises of God. Now, church, why are we leaving the temple of God in ruins and putting our time into our own houses Let's give our lives to building the temple of God, to bringing people to worship King Jesus, to make our lives lives of worship. Because I promise you, you get to heaven, you're going to look at your life and say, man, I put everything into a bag with a big hole in it. It's not worth it. For us to live is Christ. That should be 
our life's motto. Not just for me to live is to serve Christ. No, no, it is Christ. It's all his life. It's all his ministry. It's all his worship. Let's not leave the temple of ruins. Let's give our lives to build the kingdom of God. We do that, by the way, through the gospel, through worship, through singing, through preaching, through praying, through loving Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you tonight for this time in the Word and this great book. I've been reading it over and over and over, and I thought I might get tired of reading the same two chapters over and over and over, but I've become more convicted of my own sinfulness, my own neglect of the service of Christ. I don't worship as I ought to. I don't love as I ought to. Oh, Lord, forgive me for leaving in my life the temple of God in ruins and serving my own desires. Forgive us as a church. Forgive our nation. Forgive the church in America as we built beautiful sealed houses to live in while the temple of God has been in ruins. We've left the gospel in ruins. We've left the Great Commission in ruins. We think about you too little. We love you too little. Forgive us, Lord. May the call of Haggai be a wicked call to all of us. For us to live is Christ. That's the only way that dying is gain. We love you, Lord. Teach us to love you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.